when the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago, he was able to look around at the people that he was living with, and he was also able to see other beings. And he could recognize that beings have different capabilities, different understanding, different uh, obstructions or torments in the mind, different desires, different interests. And in the course of his 45 years of teaching, he met all kinds of people, people that were living the holy life exclusively, monks and nuns and ascetics and wanderers, men and women. And he met a lot of householders, people that live uh, much as we do, raising families, jobs, running businesses, administering government. And he was called upon to teach this wide variety of people and to point them in the direction of happiness with whatever conditions he found in their life or that they might have in their life. The Buddha would have a teaching that would speak to them where they were in their life and to point them towards a, an immediate course of action or behavior for uh, discovering and, and creating happiness in their life, but also not merely to point them towards an immediate only sense of satisfaction, gratification, or happiness, but something to point them towards the greatest happiness possible. And whether it could be attained in this life or not, at least being willing to plant the seed in everyone that he met, that there was the possibility of freedom and that they had that potential within them and that if they just took the next step on the path, that in time they would reach their desired goal of freedom, understanding, liberation. And so when we look back at the record of the Buddha's teachings as encoded in the Pali Canon, the Buddha speaks of many different practices for discovering happiness in our lives. And I want to give a brief overview of some of these practices. There are ways that we can really bring our life into focus as practice, as an opportunity to discover happiness or how we create unhappiness for ourselves. And there are a number of practices, not just insight practice, that can put us in a frame of mind and it's like preparing the groundwork for understanding deep insight when we do practice insight. It's like preparing the soil for the planting of the seed so that when the seed and the conditions come together, then understanding and wisdom will have a chance to sprout and grow. And so some of these practices are well-known, 
easily understood, and some of them maybe a little more. Uh, may not even be considered practices by some of us. They're all ways of stretching your limits, stretching your mind, seeing how, bringing your life into focus, an area of your life into focus, seeing how you relate to this area of life, and seeing that, oh, there may be a way to use it more skillfully to further your understanding or your openness or your receptivity to uh, awakening and enlightening insight and understanding. So I want to mention them and just briefly acknowledge the kind of happiness that comes from these practices and let you reflect on your own life how any of these behaviors or practices could be of benefit to you. Even without doing any practice of any sort, we all receive some sense of satisfaction and, and uh, enjoyment and happiness out of just pure sensory pleasure. Just doing something because it feels good. It tastes good, it smells good, or whatever. And we should acknowledge that there is a sense of happiness with that, some sense of enjoyment when we do something like that. Not to be denied, the Buddha wasn't into totally denying the pleasure of the senses. But he said that they're so seductive that we tend to get caught in just pursuing pleasures of the senses. And so he said that's the danger of this fleeting pleasure. Because it's so fleeting that we get hooked into wanting more and more and more. And sometimes never see beyond that, the mad pursuit for pleasure. And so a lot of these teachings are a lot of, the, I guess a lot of the traditions of the Buddhist teachings that come to us, you know, seem to have as a foundation, you know, avoiding sense pleasure you know, cutting it out of your life, becoming some sort of ascetic or something, or doing some very rigorous uh, self-denial trip. Well, it's only for if it's in the service of uh, awakening the possibility of other kinds of happiness, fine. If it's just out of denial and suppression, not much wisdom there. I know for myself and I think for many others who have you know, been on the path for a while in this lifetime and recognized um, some movement on the path, some increasing appreciation for the Buddhist teaching and the, the subtlety of the different practices that he's taught, that our sense of happiness, what happiness is, what makes us happy, and what how happiness feels undergoes a change. I know certainly in my case, you know, happiness used to be just something exciting and to look forward to and to get really charged up about. And now, you know, I'd have to say it's almost the opposite. If I don't get charged up about something and I can just rest in peace, you know, just with a mind and body that's still and tranquil, that's really happiness. And so there's undergone some shift in 
what it is that makes me happy or brings happiness to me. And I think that these practices awaken us to the possibility of uh, happiness being other than what our culture has conditioned us to believe it to be and to open us to deep sources of contentment and happiness within ourselves. And as such, I think that happiness undergoes a process of uh, becoming subtler and subtler. And I think sometimes when we come to Dharma practice, we expect dramatic, more and more dramatic things to happen. You know, you just practice, practice. Then you get enlightened, get really dramatic. But in fact, it's just the opposite. You know, the dramatic stuff seems to be less and less. And we begin to open to the profundity of increasingly subtler experience or understandings. And so it's, it's a sense of less and less becomes more and more. So the first practice that the Buddha would talk about in a sequence of practices is the practice of generosity, developing a heart, heart-mind, that is so connected with others around you, around us, that we spontaneously share what we have with others in need. So we share our time, we share our uh, resources, our material goods, our money, our knowledge, our inspiration, we share the Dharma. We share what we can to provide a, a community, a, a community in which there isn't um, great need, a great hunger among some, and an over-fulfillment in others. So that we really, it's, it's in learning to share, it's a first step in softening our heart, our mind, that is totally self-preoccupied, you know, getting more for me and mine. And when we begin to see that, you know, I can just get more and more of everything and I'm still not going to be happy, then the only other movement is towards others to begin to share what we have with others. The Buddha said, if beings knew, as I know, the resultant benefit of sharing, they wouldn't let a single meal go by without sharing some part of it with another being, if there was someone there or some other being there to receive it. The power of giving and sharing is so beneficial, it's so, um, its rewards are so great that he wouldn't let a single meal go by. The important consideration in developing a heart-mind that is generous, that is able to share, that feels connected to people and can't really bear to have others Uh, suffering with what they don't have when we have plenty of it. The primary consideration in giving and offering like that is to 
Watch your motivation. Watch where it is you're coming from in doing it. You know, we have uh, the opportunities to give lots of times. We get asked for requests and donations and all sorts of things, and or, it's, or we feel that it's expected of us. And often, it's kind of an exchange, you know. I'll give you something if you give me back something. Or I'll give you something expecting that you'll like me. Or that when it's my birthday, you'll give me something in return. And so we, we have these kind of motives in giving. Or we get people who make very large contributions to uh, nonprofit organizations so they can get on the board of directors. Or they get mentioned in the annual report. So they get a little uh, fame or they get a little uh, acknowledgement of prestige in some way. And it's kind of tainted giving. You know, it's not really pure. It's still giving and the receiver gets the benefit, but the giver doesn't get the benefit of a very generous, kind of a wholehearted opening and sharing. So it's really important to understand your motivation in giving. And to come from a place where the giving is motivated by a desire or an interest in seeing others not suffer for whatever conditions that they have and making an offering to them of knowledge or time or whatever that has the wish behind it that others might be free of their suffering. And suffering can be, as you know, in practicing uh, karuna, compassion meditation, suffering can be of many kinds. Physical, mental, emotional, just the whole range. And so any sharing of yourself with another in order to relieve some kind of deficiency or suffering or unhappiness comes from that really pure motivation, not expecting anything in return. Neither fame nor acknowledgement nor um, uh, an equal reward of some sort. Many years ago, when I was going to do the first, my first three-month retreat, I've only done one three-month retreat in Massachusetts, I had made plans to go to this retreat, and I wanted to have a bowl that I would eat my meals out of each time, each, each meal. And uh, near where I lived in western Massachusetts, there was a potter. Uh, fellow who studied in Japan and I really liked his pottery and the grounds it was all Japanese gardens there and and I really wanted one of his pieces of pottery as a bowl to eat out of but it was quite expensive and um, I mentioned it to my girlfriend at the time and she said well why don't we go over and I'll get you one so I went over to look around. And I mentioned to the potter when I saw him, I said, you know, I like your pottery so much and I'm going to go on a three-month retreat. I want to eat out of one of these bowls each meal. And, you know, I just love the gardens. And I'd talked with him before, but I just told him I was going to be going away. And he said, oh, you're going on retreat for three months. He says, you can go in the showroom and pick out any bowl you want. You can have it. And I thought, wow, that's really generous. I felt really good. I really liked him. (laughs) So, 
I went in and I found a little bowl that I liked and I went to the retreat and I used it every meal and it was very nice. I was very attached to it, of course. And um, well, some attachments are okay, temporarily. <laughs> so I used the bowl and I used it for a few years after that, you know, at home and whatnot. And then when I went away to Asia, uh, I packed everything away and I left it in storage. And I was in Asia for five years and, you know, doing that whole thing and had left my whole life behind. And when I came back from Asia, uh, I was still a monk and I went to the meditation center. I was invited there as a guest just to have a place to be in America as a monk. And two of my teachers that I had, Western teachers, uh, were, had invited me there. And I was so appreciative of the opportunity, you know, first, they were my first teachers, to hear the Dharma from them and to be kind of ca taken care of as a monk by them, that I offered one of them this bowl. I said, you know, I don't have much as a monk, but I'd like to give you this bowl. And she had a new house, and I thought it would be nice, a nice piece of pottery for a house. So she took the bowl, and she was very appreciative. And I felt really good, because it was something that I really liked, and I wanted her to be happy, and I gave it to her. Things went on for a couple of years, and, you know, I disrobed, and I started teaching, and, you know, whatnot. And last, I guess it was about a year ago, I was in Massachusetts, and I got invited to dinner at one of the uh, members of the board of directors of the meditation center. And this woman has been a really magnificent yogi for a number of years, you know, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, just doing a lot of practice, uh, you know, sitting three, four, five, six months a year and doing the three-month retreat every year. And she's on the board of directors. And she's a real, a real generous supporter of the Dharma, really making a lot of things possible for a lot of people. And you know, she was living in this house in Cambridge. And it's just a little carriage house. And she had getting, gotten rid of all of her property you know, as she'd been doing more and more practice, she'd gotten rid of her property and just had her, her Dharma books and a few things around. And I went into her house and we had dinner. And as the evening cooled off, we moved from outside patio inside. And she had this living room that was all white. And it had uh, a couple of big plants, a two-person uh, couch and a one-person couch. And on the mantle of the living room, fireplace. She had a little Buddha about, you know, three quarters of an inch high. That was it in the room, except on a low coffee table between the two couches, there was a little coffee table. And on that table was that bowl. My teacher, had given that woman that bowl. And that was the only thing that that woman had in that room. Obviously an expression of great something that she really liked, really appreciated. And she got a lot of joy out of it. And I was so surprised, I said, I know the potter that made that bowl. And so I told her the story. I didn't tell her that it had been my bowl one time. <laughs> I didn't tell her. And I just said, you know, and she got real excited and she really liked it. Da, 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 da. And it just made me happy again to see that someone else has gotten a lot of happiness and joy out of it. And I think the teacher that I'd given it to got a lot of happiness in sharing it with this woman. And so it was a real lesson to me to see how 
when you share something, you don't really give it away. You do give it away, but you continue to receive the benefit of it. You continue to enjoy having had it and enjoy having given it away. And I was just lucky enough to see that it was continued to be enjoyed by many other people. Later I told this very story in a retreat for the first time, and that woman was in the audience and heard about it. And later she said, oh, I didn't realize that bowl would come that way. But it's real. It points to the happiness and the power of giving, of sharing what you have. Just letting go of things into the universe to whomever, you know, and the happiness just gets passed on with it. Really powerful teaching for me. Really showing that the happiness that we get from being generous is really, you know, having good friends and being liked by others and, you know, just feeling really happy. So obvious as a way of being happy is to share what you have with others. And now that you've all heard the Dharma a little bit, at least, at least on this retreat and for some of you a lot more, it's important to know that the Buddha said that the gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. And so as much as you live your life from a Dharma perspective, from mindfulness, and you share your life with mindfulness with others, it's the greatest gift that you can give anyone. You don't have to force it down their throat. You don't have to be a missionary. That's not what he's talking about. It's the real sharing of your, your dhamma, your experience of the truth, and sharing that with others. The greatest gift you can give anyone. So that's the happiness of giving, developing a heart that is generous and connected to others. A second area of practice, an area of life to bring into focus for either creating happiness or living with unhappiness and confusion, is living a life of morality, living an ethical life based on a foundation of respect for yourself, respect for others, to really value others for just who they are, just how they are, or just what they are, and not demand or expect other people to, you know, be there just for you, you know, to meet your needs and to be who you want them to be, but rather to really honor them for being a human being or any other kind of being, if they're animals, and uh, acting in such a way that you don't harm them. Not harming them by what you do, what you say, how you do it, you know, not killing them, not stealing, not torturing, or, or not speaking harshly to them or about them or slandering them or uh, misleading them with uh, lying. Uh, not using intoxicants yourself in such a way that you forget yourself and act carelessly so that you act heedlessly and using your sexual energy in a way that respects, you know, the connection among you and others. 
so that you really don't abuse that connection, that really heartfelt love or um, just respect for others. When we live a life of morality or when we really bring our life and an ethical basis into focus, we really develop uh, a conscience that's not imposed from someone else, as I've mentioned before. It's not like we have to buy into any authority's trip, whether it's spiritual or governmental or anybody else's. It's rather tuning into your own inner authority, the one who knows in there that this is right and this is wrong, and the one that resonates with that same consideration in others. Really important to begin to recognize that within yourself so that you don't wander around life just feeling vaguely guilty for something that you don't know what was. But somehow people seem to be guilt-tripping you. Hey, step out of that. That's not your problem. Look into yourself and see where your own standards are and are you contravening, are you disrespecting yourself and others? And if so, that's an area of life to work with, to stretch your mind, to find out what your limits are and open up a little bit more. Antonio Machado was a poet, Spanish poet, back at the middle of the century. And he was asked one time, he was famous, he was asked one time to write an autobiography. And uh, he wrote a poem called Portrait. And he was a very humble, uh, simple man, but very, very sensitive to life. In part, I'm only going to read a part of this portrait. When he talks about his life, he says, There is a man of rule who behaves as he should But more than him, I am, in the good sense of the word, good. I fall silent so as to separate voices from echoes, and I listen among the voices to one voice and only one. I talk always to the man who walks along with me. Men who talk to themselves hope to talk to God someday. My soliloquies amount to discussions with this friend who taught me the secret of loving human beings. And that's really tuning into yourself, seeing what it is that really speaks within you, not what's kind of coming in from some blaring noise or personality outside, but in silence really tuning into that which is speaking within you. When we act and speak from that place within, that deep resonance of harmony with ourselves and harmony with others, then we don't have cause to regret our actions, our behavior. We can really live kind of guilt-free, so to speak. We can live without fear of being blamed by others, without harming then others have no cause for blame. We have no fear or need to fear punishment by any authorities because we're acting within the law, within some, um, 
I hate to say moral righteousness, but certainly moral refinement within us. And this gift that we give the world, our own commitment to live in harmony with others and in harmony with ourselves, is one of the great gifts that we can give the world. A sense of safety, a sense of harmony, and not uh, others not needing to fear us, not needing to fear our behavior, that it might hurt them, it might deprive them in some way. This happiness that one gets from living a guilt-free life, from living a, a blame-free life, is the happiness of harmony with others, harmony within, harmony without, and a sense of safety in community. That happiness can't be bought. There's no way you can buy it. It can only be practiced within ourselves. And it's a happiness that we all want, to be safe and to live in harmony. So living an ethical life, stretching your boundaries a little bit, considering undertaking a greater commitment to the precepts, to living without harming, without misappropriating resources, and really to bring your speech into focus as a practice in life. Now there's something that'll stretch your limits. You know, if we just considered um, any one of the precepts, just pick any one, your favorite, or at least favorite, if a substantial amount or number of the people in any country, thinking of ours in particular, just decided, you know, I'm going to live by this precept, whether it was not killing, not stealing, not misusing sexual energy, not using intoxicants to heedlessness, or speaking correctly, any one of them would have such a dramatic and profound effect on every other being in the world. It is phenomenal. But, you know, I'm not expecting that that's going to happen anytime soon. But we can each make our own commitment to that, uh, based on that understanding. So the practice of generosity, the practice of living an ethical life. Third practice is the development of a pure mind. And I've spoken about this earlier in the retreat. Developing the ability to tranquilize the mind, to calm the mind down so that we're not just tormented by our obsessive thinking. Whether it's obsessive anger or obsessive desire and craving or obsessive restlessness or doubt or confusion or depression or jealousy or anger, whatever it is, those torments uh, really create unhappiness, deep unhappiness within us. And no matter how much we get it together, you know, in the material world, so to speak, if our minds aren't brought into focus and under control, we're not going to be happy. You can have any amount of money or career or prestige or power, and if your mind is tormenting you, you don't get any satisfaction from those things. Or you don't get the satisfaction, the contentment, the fulfillment, the happiness that you really want. And so it's necessary to begin to look at the mind in such a way that we can uh, 
cool out these torments. The Buddha in the Dhammapada, as I've told you before, mentions that the mind is the forerunner of all of our happiness or unhappiness. And so working with the mind leads us to greater happiness if we're skillful in it. Primarily by overcoming the hindrances that we know so well after 13 days of practice. Sleepiness and dullness, restlessness, doubt, wanting, not wanting, and all their varieties. When we get a handle on them, when we can see through them, when we're not obsessed by being blinded by them, when we're not seduced or entranced by them, then there's a little bit of tranquility, stability, calmness in the mind. I think we've all had a taste of it somewhere. Maybe not as much as we'd like, but we all get a taste of just being without being tormented. Guan Po, that 19th century Chinese Zen master, said, the pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It is a jewel beyond all price. Beyond all price. To have a mind untormented. The happiness we get from a mind that is secluded from these torments is tranquility, peace, a lightness of mind, clarity of mind. And given any conditions that we meet in life, whatever the external conditions, if the mind is pure, if the mind is awake, chilled out, not tormented, the conditions don't disturb it. It can be pleasure, it can be pain, it can be difficult, it can be easy. We can like it, we can not like it. If the mind is free of the hindrances, then there's just that, that, that happiness, that pool of happiness remains. And this is what we've been practicing a lot here, purifying the mind, getting a handle on the hindrances, uh, recognizing them, not being so uh, enmeshed in them when they come, not judging ourselves because they come, but beginning to be able to uh, arouse the energy and to see through them, to, to put them aside temporarily, a note at a time, a moment at a time, putting sleepiness or restlessness aside, not being driven blindly by it. A fourth practice that the Buddha taught, and really the foundation for maybe all practices, is the development of metta, or the development of love. The development of a heart that, it, that cares. Cares about yourself, cares about others, cares, just plain cares about the way things are, and appreciates the way things are. When we act from a place of caring, of love, of patience, acceptance, acknowledgement, appreciation, then we really um, can't act so as to cause unhappiness. 
this love, this metta, is not primarily a relationship with one person, but rather it's a whole uh, attitudinal shift, or it's an uh, it's a it's an attitude towards all of life. The trees, the birds, our sitting cushion, our bodies, our minds, others' bodies, others' minds, the food, even things that are insignificant in our life. It's a it's a a sense of appreciation, a relationship to all things that can see everything. It's important to be seen. It's important for us to see our world, to see the plants, the trees, the animals, each other, to see our own mind, to appreciate it. And the Buddha taught the development of metta and other practices to attain deep states of absorption, what are called jhana. That in itself is another kind of practice which leads to a very refined uh, sense of happiness, contentment, subtlety, peace, stillness, tranquility. The jhanas are extraordinary states of mind, very subtle subtle states of joy, happiness, in which there are none of the hindrances, of course, in which the mind is not thinking, but is alert, is uh, very deeply absorbed in the object, in this case, metta. And uh, the tranquility and the bliss is exquisite, really exquisite, just so You know, my teacher always used to say, isn't it better than anything you've ever experienced before? And I'd have to agree with him. It is so exquisite and subtle to just have a mind so refined and so attuned to love that way. An unbelievable, pervasive pool of deep love and respect for others where one feels open and vulnerably uh, present with others, and where there's uh, exquisite caring, just the most sensitive caring for every form of suffering or unhappiness or discomfort in any other being. Where the, the quality of softness is pervasive. Softness in body, softness in mind, softness in relationships. And patience is just uh, a given. Any conditions, feeling uh, infinitely patient with. I mean, these, these are. This is the, a pool of deep happiness, you know, just unruffled by the way things are out there. Within that pool of deep patience and love, there's a feeling of interconnectedness where one is connected to all other things equally. No gender differences or racial differences or national ideological differences, not even species differences. I remember when I was practicing this, and you know in the metta chant, you know, we pervade to all beings above, all beings below, all animals and things like that. Sometimes I'd be pervading metta, and I would just get attuned to 
like the whales or the porpoises in the ocean. And it would be such a deep absorption and connection with them. It was like I was there in the bottom of the ocean with these, with these animals. Or I remember one time being on alms round and just looking up and there was a hawk or some sort of soaring bird right overhead. And just in seeing it, it's like I was transported to that bird's being and just absorbed in that bird's experience. It was fantastic. There, just no separation. The, mind, the capabilities in the mind that are in this deep of absorption are fantastic. It's a happiness that you, know, you don't find on the video screen. And it's possible. It's available to us. The Buddha pointed it out. This is a way to happiness. Stretch your mind. Dissolve your boundaries. Attain that kind of happiness. Or as my friends, the Grateful Dead, say, turn on your love light and leave it on. So, the development of deep absorptions in love. A fifth practice is the development of insight, the development of knowledge, which is primarily what we're doing here. The other things come along with it, of course. Practicing an ethical life, living with precepts, uh, developing pure mind, developing metta in concentration. But this is the development of a, a right understanding Understanding the way things are. You know, we go through life with a lot of questions, a lot of confusion, a lot of doubt, a lot of concern with, what should I do? Where should I go? When? Should I do this? Shouldn't I do that? Is this a good practice? Is that a good, is that a good teacher? Is good? Ay, 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 ay. How can we know for ourselves? Where is the end of that confusion? What practice is going to take you to that place where you know for yourself unshakably that this is the way to freedom, that this is the way to peace. Who can give you that, if anyone? We have to find it ourselves. The Buddha pointed the way through insight meditation. Outside of practice, or before we practice, or even while we're practicing, you may have noticed that a tremendous amount of our energy and time and thoughts is concerned with who I am, what I want, and what I believe. The three big C's, conceit, craving, and confusion. And we can think about it endlessly. And we do, for the most part, in practice. <laughs> but it's, we should have seen by now that just thinking about it isn't going to solve the problem, isn't going to end the torment, isn't going to take us to a settled, definite answer. Who I am, what I want, what I believe. Because it just goes round and round and round. The Buddha talked about a different kind of understanding when he talked about insight. He talked about the understanding that comes from development of the mind. Not from thinking, 
not from other teachers, not from speculating, not from rational thought, not from abstract thought or logical thought or any of that deductive reasoning or whatever, but rather the understanding that comes from developing your mind and bringing forth from your mind the, the, the conditions and qualities and understanding that is within seeing things as the way they are. We spoke earlier in a couple of talks about this practice, satipatthana, vipassana, bhavana. Satipatthana being mindfulness, the ability to observe and notice. Vipassana being the insight into anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Bhavana being development of mind, to bring forth from the mind that which is potential within it, to strengthen the mind, to grow the mind. We, we go to the gym, you know, and we pump up and we develop muscles. You know, we come on retreat and we develop mental muscles. We grow our mind strong with these practices. And it's no different than going to the Nautilus Club. You know, the Nautilus Club of the mind. I like that. <laughs> so why... <laughs> And so even in these few days that we've been here, we get these glimpses of the truth of the way things are. You know, and I mentioned it before. Impermanence and the unsatisfactoriness and the selfless nature of this kind of conditional process that's unfolding. And we see this. We begin to see it. So what? What effect does it have? Hey, we've got to go home in a couple of days and to work the next day. And, you know, this is going to be long gone history in a few hours. Remind me if I've told you this story. The benefit of getting these glimpses of insight, to get these direct experience of the truth, the way things are, it's as if you were born and grew up and lived your whole life in a little village in a valley. And if you did that, you'd come to know all the streets, all the houses, everyone that lived there, and you would your whole life would be focused in that community of you know, that geographical, economic and, and social community. And it would be your whole world. Everything you knew right there. And then one day somebody comes by and says, hey, well, let's go for a hike up in the mountains. And you go. You go up in the mountains, and as you climb up into the hills, you begin to look down on your valley, and you see it in a little different perspective. And the higher you climb on that mountain, the more space and terrain you can see around that little village you grew up in that was your whole life. And standing on the top of this peak, Looking down on that valley, that town, that village where you grew up, everyone you know, everything you've done, your whole past, present, and imagined future is in there. And then you see all this around you, the tops of the peaks, the other mountains, the other valleys, rivers, lakes, other villages, just vast expanse of other terrain. Well. It puts your whole life 
in a different perspective. You see where all of that's happening in relation to everything else, the whole cosmos, so to speak. But you can't live on that mountain. You can't live out there. You have to go back to town, back down the hill, back to your village, same job, same family, same streets, same stores, same activities, same behavior, but everything's different because it's in a different perspective. You're not so caught. You're not so identified. You're not so... Uh, the range of your vision is not so narrow. Same thing happens with insight. You come in here, you struggle to get in touch with yourself, in touch with your body, in touch with your mind, to see things as they are in a more minute way, in a different pers- from a different perspective. Well, folks, you can't stay at this level of samadhi, this level of concentration, this level of minute noticing. You've got to go home. You've got to go back to work and your families, and you've got to drive the car, and you've got to go back and enter the flow of life. But everything's going to be different. The insights, the understanding you have about your mind and about your body conditions, it informs and it transforms your life, how you make decisions and what you base those decisions on. This experience will be gone, but it has its transformative effect. That's the power of insight. And if we live in harmony with the truths that we've begun to discover, if we live in harmony with the fact of impermanence, the fact of dukkha or the uh, unsatisfactory nature of experience, and the fact of the impersonal flow of phenomena that we are, if we live in harmony with that, then we find peace and happiness. If we live resisting the truth, those truths that we've discovered, we're sure to find unhappiness, difficulty, pain, problems in our life. That's the power of insight. That's the happiness, the potential happiness that comes from deep seeing into the minute nature of mind-body. If you went home and never practiced insight meditation again, in time, that understanding would wear off. You'd forget. You'd get caught up in your daily life. You'd be sunk in your old conditioning and old beliefs. And the, the, the facts that we've begun to see here and cultivate here and recognize here would be obscured again by the habitual mind. No effect. So the Buddha taught that there is continued practice of insight. And it is possible in this gradual path of awakening that as we open to greater potential within us, as we open to understanding, as we open to seeing the the fact of these truths and their effect on our lives, that there are some subtle but profound openings in the mind. And in time, the mind can really open to that which is beyond everything we know, where the mind can open to the unconditioned, where the mind can see beyond anything that we know. Not see, actually touch, experience the unconditioned. A peace so profound that it is undisturbed by anything. 
and it has a irreversible transformative effect on your mind. And if you don't ever practice insight again, it doesn't matter because that mind is never going back to where it was before. Never. Certain tendencies of the mind, certain torments in the mind get completely uprooted. No more to sprout, no matter what conditions arise. It's a profound teaching that the Buddha points to. Exquisite, subtle, and profound. And it's available to us. The teaching is here, the opportunity is here, the practice is here. The Buddha said, in the practice of insight, in the opening to the unconditioned, in the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion in all their forms from the mind, this truly is the greatest peace, the greatest happiness. There is no higher happiness than peace, the mind that is undisturbed by anything. That's what we're practicing here. We're practicing to cultivate the, the, the ground for that seed to grow. Every moment of mindfulness, every moment of making the effort, coming to sit, going to walk, just being present, tends that seed, cultivates that seed, that knowledge, that power of mind to be free and at peace. So I encourage you all to really hear that possibility through these practices of, of developing generous heart, uh, living an ethical life, developing a pure mind through overcoming the hindrances, through developing metta and deep absorptions in love, through developing insight and through accessing the unconditioned. We have that potential within us. We all do. We all have the conditions in this life to move towards that. And we are, just doing this retreat, is a movement towards that. It's a commitment. It's a marshalling of our energy and our intention to see that for ourselves. So I encourage you to uh, remember these practices. And may you all be happy.